Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part three of CT Evaluation of the Spleen Challenges and Diagnosis. And last time we spoke about some of the benign and malignant lesions in the uh, spleen. And then we spoke about, or we're going to speak about, what things involve both liver and spleen. Remember I said before that if you see a splenic lesion, we look around to see what else there is. And if you tell me something involves the liver and spleen, I'm thinking about lymphoma. I'm thinking of metastasis like melanoma. I'm thinking infections, candidiasis, aspergillosis. I'm thinking sarcoid. And then, of course, you can have cysts, but you can have infarcts. But these are the big four. And sarcoid is an interesting lesion. It's one of the things that's a great imitator. You can see here, it could easily imitate what you would think about as representing lymphoma, a metastatic melanoma. Uh, sarcoid commonly involves a spleen. It's more common at PATH than it is at on the CT image. But you can see here, as an example, multiple lesions look like abscesses, could be. Could be metastasis, I guess. Could it be cysts? This is one of the challenges sometimes. But if you measure it, they're not water density, and they're not as sharply marginated as most of the typical cysts I showed you. With sarcoid, the spleen can, but it's not always enlarged. And here's just a nice coronal view. Often the diagnosis of sarcoid is not known. And then you'll be the first one to make the diagnosis. Here's an example where the patient has nodes in the chest and look at the abdomen, liver and splenic lesions. Could this be lymphoma? Absolutely. Metastatic melanoma? Absolutely. This was sarcoid. So sarcoid is a great mimicker and it's one of the more difficult diagnoses. Sarcoid and lymphoma can look very much the same when they involve the liver and spleen. Another example, multiple lesions, again, sarcoidosis. And here it is on the coronal view, multiple lesions ranging from several millimeters to several centimeters. Pretty extensive involvement, which is a very common appearance when you look at sarcoidosis in the patient's spleen. And here's another example. Look at the spleen. It's enlarged, multiple lower density lesions, not cysts, not that well defined. Infiltrating process could be thinking lymphoma. It can be difficult. Just some numbers, sarcoid, most commonly 30 to 50 age range. African Americans are infected more, three times more commonly than whites. Pulmonary complications are the most common cause of death. Uh, cystic changes in the lung, interstitial fibrosis. And the symptoms include fatigue, fever, and weight loss, which also are symptoms you're typically associated with malignancy. So you can see why it can be significant confusion. When you look at the abdomen and sarcoid, a lot of areas can be involved. I showed you already liver and spleen, but also kidneys, lymph nodes, the small bowel, as well as the stomach. The liver is the number one organ involved. Up to 94% of patients, most patients are asymptomatic, with the most common finding being hepatomegaly. Lesions may be solitary, but multiple would be more common. Within the spleen, up to 59% of patients with sarcoid have splenic involvement with the CT findings ranging from splenomegaly to nodules that are solitary or multiple nodules. So again, you will see commonly splenic and liver involvement in sarcoid. So just remember that. Now, again, one of the things I've noticed is often the diagnosis is a total surprise right? No one expects a diagnosis of sarcoid. Patient gets a CT for some reason, and all of a sudden everyone's worrying about malignancy. So always think about sarcoid, particularly in healthier young females. Now, I mentioned um, abscesses. Now, splenic abscesses are rare, but it's something we do think about all the time, particularly in patients with fever, FUO workups. 
there's a range of appearances. Now, on the other hand, if you have patients who have uh, bone marrow transplants, then when you see small lesions, you're thinking about infection. Candidiasis is the most common. Aspergillosis is right up there at number two. Single or multiple, usually multiple, lesions in the spleen, low density, one cm or less, and not only in the spleen, but also in the liver. So remember, when you have something in liver and spleen, we talked about thinking infection, thinking Canada or aspergillosis. Very nice appearance here and on the coronal views as well. So a very, very common appearance. Now, I can show you a little bit more about the spleen and splenic abscess are indeed something that are important. Uh, about 15% or less of splenic abscesses contain air. So if you're looking for air, you're gonna have a problem. So it can be somewhat of a challenge in terms of diagnosis. Now, there are other things we think about in the spleen, and that would include vascular processes like aneurysms or pseudoaneurysms. Aneurysms are usually incidental findings while pseudoaneurysms often present with symptoms. That's a good little pearl. Now, when you talk about splenic artery aneurysm, some of the facts. It's the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm with a frequency up to 10%. It's four times more common in women compared to men, but men are the ones who get the complications of rupture three times more commonly. There are certain diseases or certain associated conditions. Atherosclerosis is number one, hypertension, portal hypertension, cirrhosis, pregnancy, and liver transplantation. When you talk about pseudoaneurysms, we talk about something that's happened. Pancreatitis by far in a way is number one, but also trauma, post-op changes, and peptic ulcer disease. Nice example of a one centimeter splenic artery aneurysm. Under two centimeters, people just watch. Two centimeters or better, people will typically either embolize or operate. I mentioned portal hypertension is one of the causes. And here's a large spleen in a patient with portal hypertension. You see a cirrhotic liver, a demodus mesentery. Very nice aneurysm sitting right by the hilum of the spleen. And there's another example here, again, splenic artery aneurysm near the hilum. In fact, there are two splenic artery aneurysms, one partially calcified, nicely shown. Now, one thing to remember is patients who have splenic artery aneurysms often have other vessel aneurysms. So if you see a splenic artery aneurysm, keep looking. So this patient also had a GDA aneurysm. So patients who have vascular disease that leads to aneurysms, it's often not just one local bed. Another example of splenic artery aneurysm, these often will calcify. Sometimes they're totally calcified and they have no flow. Other times they're calcified and have flow, as in this case. Sometimes they're partially thrombosed, sometimes totally thrombosed. But very nice example of a splenic artery aneurysm in this case here. And then, of course, they can be large. Look at the size of this splenic artery aneurysm. Uh, you can see this is not something that can be embolized. This is something that will be resected. Here it is in 3D, just a very, very pretty picture of a giant splenic artery aneurysm. And here it is again. Now I mentioned pseudoaneurysms, something usually happens. The most common thing in my experience is pancreatitis. And it's not your first episode, it's when patients have had multiple episodes of pancreatitis. The fluid from pancreatitis, the pancreatic fluid, erodes the vessel, weakens the vessel, as 
in this case leads to a pseudoaneurysm. These pseudoaneurysms can rupture, the patients can bleed to death. Remember we said aneurysms are often incidental findings, pseudoaneurysms are often symptomatic, though not always. And you can see in this case the pseudoaneurysm. You also can see some of the hematoma around it, which is compressing it. These can easily rupture and the patients can exsanguinate. Very, very important life-saving diagnosis. Here is another few views of that patient's uh, pseudoaneurysm here as well. These cases you can resect. Embolization uh, is more common these days, and in 3D you really can show the vessel very nicely. Another example, splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. You can see this fluid around it. This patient bled. Actually, in fact, the patient presented down. A patient was very lucky. They took him to the hospital. They resuscitated him. On the original study, which I did see, I did not see evidence of a um, splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. It was compressed by a larger bleed. When the bleed decreased, we then can see it. And you can see it very nicely in this example. Uh, this was eventually resected. This patient was very lucky because with the splenic artery pseudoaneurysm, and it was unclear why, the patient was a weightlifter, you could see all sorts of problems. The patient can exsanguinate. So again, a critical diagnosis and one that needs to be managed very aggressively. And here's just a few views of that pseudoaneurysm with some of the clot inside of it. Now it's interesting, most of the cases I've mentioned to you, you can see problems. And then when you have the problem, uh, the problem typically is that something uh, is of an easy to miss. It's like a splenic artery pseudoaneurysm or an aneurysm. Every once in a while, and then I showed you also how you can be fooled and call something a neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreatic tail where it's really just um, accessory spleen. Well, here's a great example of a patient referred in for pancreatic mass that was felt to be a neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreatic tail. You can see an enhancing lesion with rim calcifications. And if you think about it for a second, you realize you're not dealing with a pancreatic mass. You're dealing with a vascular lesion that's a pancreatic um, a pseudo-lesion, I would call it. It's a splenic artery aneurysm pushing on the tail of the pancreas. Just a beautiful example. And you see, you really recognize it when you go to the 3D, and you see there it is, the splenic artery aneurysm, partially calcified. And it was just sitting in the perfect position to simulate a tail of the pancreas lesion. This patient was very lucky. They had the uh, aneurysm resected. There was no need for pancreatic surgery because the patient had no pancreatic pathology. It's interesting. Look at it on the arterial and venous phase imaging. You see how it washes out and... That should have made you think that you were dealing with an aneurysm, okay? Just a very nice example. Now, when we talk about the spleen and vascular processes, we need to mention splenic infarcts. Splenic infarcts are common, particularly in ERs, particularly with IV drug abuse, HIV. They can be segmental or global. When they're segmental, they can involve one or more zones. Global, obviously, almost the entire spleen is involved. Segmental is indeed more common. Etiologies include bacterial endocarditis, atrial fib, sickle cell anemia, lymphoma, and splenomegaly, to name a couple. And the typical appearance, wedge-shaped, low density, sharply marginated, and its appearance can vary over time as it can get smaller as there's capsular retraction. Nice example here. Um, now, one thing to say is that sometimes if you do not give IV contrast, you're not going to be able to see the lesion, 
but again very nicely shown here and you can see again on this image here okay this is almost global in nature now it's interesting sickle cell really is uh, in a sense one of the diseases that gives constant splenic infarcts you typically will get autoinfarction of the spleen splenic size may be just a pittance a little calcification after time and sickle cell SS disease has a smaller spleens due to repeat infarctions and eventually autoinfarction things like sickle thalassemia can have larger spleens they may contain no calcifications or they may contain some calcifications classic appearance sickle cell look at that left upper quadrant small spleen densely calcified that's non-functioning another example right here patient had pleural effusions but that's non-functioning another example here with some of the um, modeled calcification there it is there the spleen size is not as small as some of the other cases I showed you but it was essentially an autosplenectomy nevertheless the last thing I'll go into is splenic abscess or another last thing I mentioned before about splenic abscesses with multiple splenic lesions as well as with something that involves both the liver and spleen and I mentioned about patients with fungal infection who are immunocompromised well splenic abscesses are rare when you do get them it can be life-threatening risk factors diabetes alcoholism IV drug abuse are the most common they're typically low density and irregular you can see air but under 20 percent probably more like under 10 percent and it can be a challenging diagnosis because it can simulate infarct or even a cystic tumor here's an example of a low density lesion can this be lymphoma lymphoma primary splenic lymphoma and abscesses can look very similar the clinical history does help you or this example look at the infiltration of the spleen the subcapsular collections this patient has Yersinia it was a real pathogen from the patient's workplace you can see infarction of the spleen abscess formation abscess and infarct can easily go hand in hand I showed you before an example of multiple tiny abscesses I showed you candida has aspergillosis so there are a number of things to think about so the spleen is really a wide spectrum of disease lesion detection we're very good at though some of the small lesions is hard lesion definition can be a bit trickier and surely lesion determination what we're specifically dealing with can be challenging there's often not a second study to refer to and there's often not a primary uh, other imaging technique or way of doing the CT differently so it's indeed kind of challenging it's rare to do biopsies I think part of it is understanding the various differential diagnoses thinking about the clinical history thinking about the findings and if you do that well I think you're gonna do a great job and with that I will thank you for your attention and have a great day